Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to this World War II edition of the A.J. Bruno Show. I'm joined today by noted U.S. military historian Marty Morgan as we plunge into this enormous subject. Hello, Marty. It's nice to have you on. Thank you, A.J. It's good to be on the show. Fantastic. So would you start off by telling us uh, what interested you in military history and in particular researching World War II and leading battlefield tours as well? Well, I first got into the subject um, when I was very young. I was the son and I had several other family members um, who were veterans. So I was kind of raised around the culture of the U.S. Army. And um, one of my grandfathers fought in the Second World War. It was in the 1970s at a time when um, there were a number of really good motion pictures about World War II history, and I got enthusiastic about them at a very young age. The, the ones that come to mind first are um, I was big, a big fan of the movie A Bridge Too Far, and also Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One, if you remember that movie. Got very interested in those. Um, at a young age, and that as a combination of being around veterans, being around my my father. My father was doing um, continuing military education courses that were often about military history, and I got a little roped into it um, through him and his his Army career. And then I studied history um, when I was in undergraduate school and grad school. And I've just been really lucky since I got out to do a few things that are quite exciting that relate to the, the history of, of the conflict. The biggest thing is that I continue to lead battlefield tours to World War II sites around the world. I have been doing that for almost 20 years now, and I continue to do it today. In fact, I'm leading a tour that starts next week. I'm flying to Italy to start a World War II battlefield tour for Italy, and then I go from there up to Luxembourg and Belgium to lead another tour that's about the Battle of the Bulge. So let's uh, start a bit with the Pacific before we switch theaters. I know you're making a documentary about Pearl Harbor. Uh, Can you give us some more information on that and how it relates to the events themselves? Yes, I... In 2005 while evacuated from Hurricane Katrina, because I live in the New Orleans area, I I went to a place called Fort MacArthur, that's in San Pedro, California, and saw a piece of original film footage that they have, a part of the collection at Fort MacArthur's Military Museum, that depicted the Pearl Harbor attack. It It was a pretty arresting thing to see because it was a piece of color film and there really just aren't existing assets in terms of color photography of December 7th. Um, At the time, the staff knew just some of the basics of where and when the footage was recorded. I got quite excited about it because the footage I find to be very, very thrilling and compelling. And it started a process of research that has been pulling me along ever since. That was in 2005, so that was 17 years ago. And it's 17 now, 
13, 12, 13. Yeah, 13 years ago. And so uh, during that more than a decade time period, I've continued uh, researching the footage, the people that filmed the footage, because it was a husband and wife. And uh, to the extent that I've been out to the site, to the house where they lived at the time, to all of the spots where they filmed this footage during the attack, and I was involved in uh, a number of television programs around the time of the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And those, in each case, I pitched this, this color film footage to the producers involved in those projects. And none of them could make it work. They just couldn't get this film footage in, into the projects that they were working on. And the result was that I had this, what I consider to be this super rare, super important piece of color film footage related to December 7th that actually captures moments of the second wave of the Japanese tech. And I couldn't get TV producers interested in doing anything with it. And out of frustration, I decided to make my own documentary, which is almost complete now. It's down to the having to complete the final touches of the sound design. And I'm going to be launching that on the anniversary this year. So on December 7th, 2018, I'm going to launch it on my YouTube channel and get this piece of film footage of the exposure that it deserves. Great. Sounds good. So in regards to Pearl Harbor, um, some say leading up to that, that the U.S. was essentially egging Japan on by freezing their assets and imposing an oil embargo. What do you think about that in relation to the attack? I see a couple of ways of looking at that. Because first and foremost, there's no question that the United States was involved in, uh, in provocative and confrontational moves that sought to contain the expansion of the Japanese war against China. And I often like to point out that it is one thing for there to be diplomatic measures, and it is another thing entirely to carry out a military attack on a base that's located very close to a civilian population without the benefit of a declaration of war. The Japanese, of course, had a plan, for the declaration of war to have already been issued, but that bogged down, fell apart, and the result was that there was no existing declaration of war when the first bombs fell. So we could say on one hand, and there are people that say this, that the U.S. brought it on itself by provoking the Japanese. And the point I like to make is that those provocations, though, were all diplomatic in nature. Yeah, the United States was taking a bold, a bold stand against the continuing expansionist war that the Japanese were leading against the Chinese, and it was all being done uh, for diplomatic measures, through things like embargoes and then expelling diplomats and then freezing assets. And so the big step there is when it turns into a shooting war, I believe that it's, it, it's no longer quite so valid to say that the United States was directly provoking the Japanese because mm-hmm. the way that conflicts are supposed to be resolved between nations is that if there is a conflict, the entire point of having a diplomatic core 
and maintaining diplomatic relations with other countries is so that conflict can be avoided. The entire point of it is to have engagement that would tend to steer the two countries away from the collision course. And that's now, not what happened in this case. No, doesn't seem like it. So it seems to me that they went into this without um, a realistic way to defeat the U.S. and the other allies. Uh, do you think they had an actual chance in the long run, particularly against the U.S. Navy, which I think was always far superior to the Japanese? I think that it's, uh, they really did not stand a chance to win the war that they inherited because the war that they inherited was a protracted war of attrition spanning vast distances of open ocean wherein the Japanese empire attempted to maintain an oceanic empire against another powerful nation. And that is the, that's the conflict that Japan couldn't really win. However, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that what the Japanese assumed would happen, uh, they had reason to believe that they wouldn't have to do that. They had reason to believe that it wouldn't descend into a protracted war of attrition. Japanese uh, could look at the United States um, and their assessment over the course of decades was that the United States would not make a bold stand for far-off empire in places like the Philippine Islands or on the island of Guam. And the Japanese, therefore, assessed that, well, the United States, we can, if we can get in a quick couple of hits at the outset of the conflict, the United States won't put up a big fight, and this can all be resolved within less than a year. The Japanese assumed that the United States would not undergo a full national mobilization and with a full commitment to opposing the Japanese empire and and pushing it back out of the territory that it had expanded to uh, envelop. So on the one hand, you can say that, uh, yeah, the Japanese had a a plan. And the problem is that that plan was that the war would be over swiftly. And if that is what had happened, I think the Japanese would have probably done quite well if the if if the United States had not exhibited greater if the United States had not exhibited the levels of resolve and determination that it ultimately exhibited. But instead uh, the Pearl Harbor attack had a unifying effect. The nation then underwent this full national mobilization uh, with a commitment to defeat well a commitment that was initially Japan only, but then ultimately became Japan, Nazi Germany, and fascist Italy. Mm. So with, with that, with the full provocation with the United States, with the U.S. that wasn't just willing to kind of walk away from the, the western part of the Pacific, Japan, I don't think, stood a reasonable chance of, of a prevailing in a clash of arms with the United States that stretched on over the course of years. So the U.S. Sure. was in a was in a, a better position then, um, with full with full national resolve to carry out the war. And that's not to say that full national resolve 
uh, went with no cracks in the foundation for all of the years of the war. And that's not what happened. There were moments of crack resolve where resolve was sagging. Uh, but that doesn't come until much later in the conflict. By then, the United States was irrevocably committed to a course of action and a campaign that would ultimately result in the surrender of the Japanese. But it took time. It took time, and the Japanese had not assumed that we would be willing to pursue this national global, this national objective over the course of years the way that we did. They just, they, and it's funny because I think sometimes that even in the present day, to the outside observer, the United States might not look like it is a nation that can move toward resolve because it's a nation that is quite conspicuous with the way that it plays out internal political debates in this way. I think that 2018 looks a little bit like things looked 75 years ago. Hmm. And to the outside observer, they might just assess that, oh, the United States is a country that can't possibly get behind um, a single unified objective. I believe that this was what the Japanese believed about us. The Japanese looked at us and they looked at the, the, the bipartisan political dichotomy in the United States leading up to the war. And they saw that the U.S. had, there were so many people in the United States that were committed to the idea of an isolationist agenda, not wanting to become involved in the, in the conflicts in Europe or the conflicts in Asia. And they saw that, for example, there was a large American Nazi party, that, there, that the United States was a politically diverse place and a racially diverse place. And the Japanese assessed that the U.S. could never bring all of these different factions together to push toward one national goal. And so they were a little inaccurate in that assessment because the country was, was able to get beyond um, these internal and petty divisions to move toward the national, uh, the national goal that would ultimately defeat Japan. And I think that Germany and Japan, as well as Italy, I think all three of them uh, misread the country in that way. And look at the way that, look at the way that it all ended. It was uh, definitely a big miscalculation. So before we talk about Germany and that whole theater, I uh, mentioned Japanese surrender. I want to talk about that. Um, there are a few different thought, schools of thought about whether it was needed to drop the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Some think if the condition that the emperor could maintain his position was conceded beforehand, that they were ready to surrender. Others maintain they would have forced a cataclysmic mainland invasion. What do you think about this? Yeah, and you know that was that was an issue that came up during the summer of 1945 as we were moving toward um, toward the, the the two main operations that were going to constitute Operation Downfall, the invasion of the Home Islands, which would have been first Operation Olympic, which is the invasion of Kyushu that was scheduled to begin on November 1st, 1945, and then Operation Coronet, which was begin to, scheduled to begin on March March 1st, 1946. Um, and throughout the summer, there were moments where the Japanese were reaching out to us toward the end of a negotiated peace because the Japanese were recognizing that the tactical situation had changed so much and that the Soviet Union was poised in a position to intervene in the war. The Japanese realized that that, that was not going to be a winning formula for them. So they reached out to us, and the first issue that comes up is the idea of uh, perpetuating 
the imperial system, and the United States wouldn't wouldn't negotiate over it, with President Truman reiterating the idea of unconditional surrender. And in the end, that is a condition that was accepted just to achieve peace that, in the hindsight of historical vision, looks to have been the right call. Because we went from this very powerful nation that opposed us and everything to a a nation that became a partner and continues to be a partner to this day. The issue about the rightness or the wrongness of dropping the atomic bomb, it, it continues to perplex me. Because when I was in graduate school, um, the first time working on my master's, the Smithsonian was going to put together an exhibit that marked the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. And the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum was going to feature part of the restored cockpit of B-29 and Noah Gay. And just the planning for this museum exhibit led to a scandal and a controversy that eventually resulted in a a congressional inquiry, as well as the dismissal of the director of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, a man named Martin Harlan. And it was bizarre to me to, as a thinking rational student of history, to watch all of that happen at the 50th anniversary. And it's still bizarre to me that the subject comes up so frequently because I dealt with some um, some young history graduate students a year ago um, that made points to me like it was wrong to drop the bomb. And when I challenged that idea, they said, well, if it were, maybe it wasn't wrong to drop the first bomb, but it was wrong to drop the second bomb. And I think all of that misunderstands some very important and critical aspects of the way that the war was ending. And the first and foremost is, in my mind, the fact that we had already destroyed uh, 70 Japanese cities through conventional strategic bombing. And I find that when people raise these concerns or raise these criticisms of the decision to use the atomic bomb, that they fail to grasp the fact that strategic bombing over Japan did not begin with Hiroshima. In fact, Hiroshima was really only an escalation of the strategic bombing campaign that was already underway. That strategic bombing campaign began in August of 1944, and it just was not effective until Operation Meeting House, which was the big 300-plane B-29 raid against the city of Tokyo um, on March 9th and 10th, 1945. And that raid marked the transition from high-level daytime precision bombing to low-level nighttime area bombing, the so-called firebombing raids. And with the, with the transition to low-level nighttime area bombing, the strategic campaign uh, took on a completely different aspect and was suddenly producing results that, that were far more suitable to the American strategic goal of bombing Japan in, into, um, not into complete destruction, but bombing Japan to break the, the will to continue fighting. So from Operation Meeting House, March 9th and 10th, to Hiroshima, August 6th, well, what I, I find that people have often overlooked is the fact that strategic bombing happened on a regular basis. It was very effective and it involved a firebombing, and it involved things like firestorms, and it involved the very high loss of life. What I find so very perplexing is that um, many people overlook the fact that Operation Meeting House, which was just the 300-plane uh, raid on Tokyo, 
it, it killed over 100,000 people in one night. And it's bizarre to me that Hiroshima and Nagasaki have eclipsed that one raid, and that's just one raid. There were mm. dozens of other raids that were not quite as gruesomely effective, but there were other raids that were producing incredibly high body counts. And so to me, it seems strange that we suddenly um, affix all of this infatuation with Hiroshima and Nagasaki to the extent that it overlooks everything that had happened through the use of conventional weapons, because there were literally hundreds of thousands of Japanese people killed before Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, by right. conventional weapons. Yeah, and, they, and I feel like the people killed by the conventional campaign are, are sort of, they have drifted off and they're a little bit forgotten in favor of remembering the Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now, and I understand, I real, realistically acknowledge that you've got to recognize Hiroshima and Nagasaki representing something different and more powerful because of the transition from conventional weapons to nuclear weapons. I understand that. But at the same time, I think that the war ended for everyone involved in the best way that it could have. That's not to say that I'm glad that Japanese civilians died, because I'm certainly not glad about that. However, I do believe that it is the best outcome, because, for example, Fleet Admiral Chester Nimitz was advocating for a blockade of, Japanese, of the Japanese home islands. And so that if the, um, if the president had opted to go with the Navy proposal, which was blockading, the total number of Japanese who died during World War II would be dramatically higher than it, than it ended up being. And there are estimates that in the first year that possibly a million people could have died, and they would have probably died from starvation. Hmm. This is not to say that it's a good thing to die from an atomic bomb, but if our overall concern is with the humanitarian quality of the way that the conflict ended, things could have been so much worse. Because if the United States had proceeded with Operations Olympic and Coronet in 19, uh, late 1945 and early 1946, there would have been a very high loss of life on both sides as well. The United States would have lost um, more people than we had lost in combat in the Pacific to date. And then also there would have been an extremely high loss of life among Japanese civilians, a far higher loss of life than the loss of life um, that was caused by American strategic bombing. To this day, we, we count approximately 350,000 Japanese civilians killed by strategic bombing. And I remember when I was in grad school, the first time working on the master's degree, that there was a period where there were a number of authors came out, I think of Ronald Takaki, for example, uh, that came out and, and presented this a racial argument that the United States would never have dropped the atomic bomb on Germany because it was a nation of, of white people. That they would only have used such a, a vicious and fierce weapon against non-white people. And um, the, the reality there is, is that the United States and U.S. Army Air Forces and then the Royal Air Force Bomber Command killed far more German civilians than Japanese civilians as a result of strategic bombing. So there was that one period where the racial arguments came up, and I, 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 the racial arguments are quite easily dismissed as being spurious. And the reality is that the, 
the war could have ended under circumstances of a much higher levels of human suffering, and the war could have ended with a far, a vastly higher loss of life on all sides considered. And so I think that despite the loss of life and considering the circumstances of the era, the war ended under the the best possible circumstances. It could have been an ongoing Armageddon that continued into 1947 and 1948. And thankfully, that's not what happened. Those are some great points. So um, on the other side of the world, uh, before the U.S. got out of the war, it was obviously going quite badly for Britain and whatever other allies that were left. Um, do you think, had the U.S. never employed Lend-Lease or later entered the war in Europe, was there any chance that the other allies could have prevailed? I think probably not. And this is because of the, the critical contribution of American industry. And American industry before American intervention and then even after American intervention in the conflict. The Soviet Union, of, of course, and it's of course the Soviet Union that makes the greatest sacrifice toward victory during the Second World War with the highest loss of life by far, dramatically higher than the American loss of life. The Soviet Union um, needed us just as much as we needed them. And I just got back from England literally yesterday, and a point that I was discussing with a colleague in England earlier in the week was that in the UK, food rationing continued until 1954. So... The United Kingdom was in a desperate position. Let's just turn the clock back to the era of the Blitz between September 40 and May 1941, when the UK was being softened up by the Luftwaffe for a ground invasion. The UK could not have held on without American assistance. This is not to say that they couldn't have done it without us, uh, but they certainly needed the material support that we were, we were in a position to provide. And I often think back to that era and think back to the, the very complicated geopolitical situation that President Roosevelt had to confront on a daily basis in those months before Pearl Harbor, the years and months before Pearl Harbor. Was, he was looking at these very powerful nations that were directly antagonistic toward the United States and toward our closest allies. And those nations were ready to take us on. And the president, with a Congress that was hostile to him, with an American public that, for the most part, favored isolationism, the continuation of the already existing American policy of isolationism, that the president had enough of a backbone to recognize that war was coming. He could see the war clouds gathering. And he needed the country to be ready, and he needed to provide support to allies uh, with the recognition that war was inevitable. And he recognized that if England fell, that was it for Europe. I was at this site um, just the other day. In fact, Sunday, I was in France. And I was in Normandy, and I went to this really cool site that's not really popular. It's way off the beaten path. It's not near the invasion beaches. The tour buses don't go there. But it is a site of a German radio direction finding facility. The Germans used this, this system that was called Nikobein. And it was built by the Luftwaffe in 1940 
as a means of providing a navigational beacon that it made it possible for Luftwaffe bombers to fly across the channel and reach targets in the United Kingdom and to do so at night when they couldn't see, they couldn't use navigational cues that they could see from the cockpit. So they built this beacon system. And on the main bunker for the facility, there's a big Luftwaffe eagle in concrete. And then there is a, um, an inscription beneath it that says, uh, built in 1940 by Adolf Hitler during the war with England. And when I saw it, my first thought was like, how weird that they just mentioned England. But then I thought back, step back in time to that moment, that moment, say, um, let's say the fall of 1940, pushing into the winter of 1940. At that moment, that's, that's what Nazi Germany looked at. To Nazi Germany, there was one war and one enemy and one enemy only, and it was England. This was before Operation Barbarossa, before the invasion of the Soviet Union. The Soviets were still an ally of Nazi Germany at that point. And it, it provided a moment of, a nice moment of reflection and contemplation because I often don't find myself thinking in, on the terms of what it was like in 1940. And it, it refreshed my appreciation for the fact that England was alone and England was the, the last bastion of, of Western liberal democratic thought in Europe at the time, and in a Europe that was that had been overrun by the enemy. Wow! And so that site, uh, it's a it's a fascinating site for no other reason, uh, for for several reasons, but I think that one is probably the most the most powerful. And I'm glad that President Roosevelt, um, although he wasn't a perfect person because nobody is, but I'm glad that President Roosevelt had the the wisdom and the judgment to recognize that conflict was coming. And he did everything within his power to prepare the country and then also to confront the enemy, even though the circumstances did not yet exist for him to bring the, the United States into the conflict as a combatant ally. In fact, there's a point where Roosevelt, his declared policy was, I want to do everything short of war. That's the quote. That's the soundbite, short of war. He wanted to do everything short of war to support England and the other, and, and to, to confront attempts to isolate German expansion. And we did some things that obviously and definitely violated ideas of neutrality. The United States was not an actual neutral, but we certainly love to announce how neutral we were while we simultaneously provided Germany's enemies with the weapons, equipment, and food that they would need to continue fighting. And it to me, it to me is is um, it's refreshing and rewarding to to imagine that there was a leader that made such a bold stand, even though he could not go the last step of declaring war on Germany in 1940 for a thousand different reasons. He did everything within his limited powers as the president of the United States to help our allies uh, to the detriment of Nazi Germany, and I think that provides a pretty excellent legacy for him. Makes sense. So to you, what would you pinpoint the turning point or the point of no return um, for the access in the war? Was it the Battle of Stalingrad being pushed back there? Was it losing North Africa and access to the oil reserves that that link provided? Uh, where would you say that was? This is a fun question, and I, this comes up on every single tour I lead, and I love it, because I typically indicate 
three turning points in the war. And they are, as you have already indicated, Stalingrad in North Africa it would be the Battle of El Alamein. And then for the Pacific War, I always say Midway, Battle of Midway, June 1942, although I have some people that, that challenge that and say, yeah, maybe it was more like the Guadalcanal campaign. But I feel like the foundation was created at the Battle of Midway that would ultimately provide the undoing of Imperial Japan as an Oceanic Empire. But certainly, Stalingrad provides the turning point of continued German expansion into the Soviet Union. And Stalingrad um, tumbles over all of Germany's plans for the domination of Russia in North Africa. Um, the Battle of El Alamein upsets all objectives that not of North Africa and then reaching toward the Caucasus and to um, dominate the Mediterranean. And from, from El Alamein forward, it's a, it's a process of pushing the enemy back that leads us to the great, the great moment of redemption in North Africa, which is the fall of Axis fighting forces in Tunisia in May of 1943, which I think is what, May 13th, 1943, when 250,000 Axis prisoners of war are surrendered to the Allies, Carthage, Bizerta, and Tunis. So, and all and that all of the events that led to that the first big surrender of Axis forces in um, in the Second World War, all of that happens as a consequence of the setback that Germany experiences during the Battle of El Alamein. So then the big then the big issue is the debate about is it Midway or is it Guadalcanal? I lean toward Midway because I, I, I see the Guadalcanal campaign and understand it to be a consequence of the ongoing um, opposition with, with the, the ongoing inter-service rivalry within the Japanese military of Army versus Navy, of Army-supported campaigns that are pushing toward Australia and Navy-supported campaigns, um, the strategic vision that where the two branches of services were not in harmony with one another. And much of that is much of that strife between the service branches is exacerbated by the setback at the Battle of Midway. So I can't help but recognize Midway as being um, one of the big three turning points of the war. And so after after Stalingrad, El Alamein, and Midway, it for the opposing sides, it's just never the same again. Hmm. Makes sense. And so you've written a book about D-Day, and that obviously was extremely important. Um, so they already opened up another front in Italy, but had that landing somehow failed in Normandy, uh, what do you think would have happened? I think we would have seen, I think Checkpoint Charlie would not have been on the Friedrichstrasse in Berlin, but instead on Avenue des Champs-Élysées in Paris. So if the Normandy, so that's a big jump, I guess, isn't it? But let me, let me make that make sense for you. If the Normandy invasion had failed, which it could have, even if the invasion had a, successfully established a beachhead, but then the Germans continued to doing what they had done basically through the end of June and through all of July, which was seal us in to the beachhead area, preventing us from breaking out, there's no reason why that 
couldn't have continued. We had successes on the battlefield in operations like Cobra, yes, but those were narrowly one successes in many counts. So if, let's just say that we land on June 6th, we establish a beachhead, we hold it, but we don't break out. So that the breakout, which really occurs with Cobra, that leads then to the Mortain counteroffensive and the Falaise pocket battle, which is what ends the 100-day-long campaign in Normandy. Uh, let's just say that all of that really gets delayed and it doesn't all get sealed up in August. We don't liberate Paris on August 25th, but let's say it's pushing back two months, which I don't think is unreasonable to consider as a part of a, of, of a contrafactual history. Let's just say it took another two months to get out of Normandy. Suddenly, the entire um, complexion of the war in Europe fundamentally changes because the Soviets launched the Vistula Oder Offensive in January, they begin driving through Silesia. They make great headway toward Berlin. We're still delayed at the point when we should be already across the Rhine River in Germany. Let's just say if it's a two-month delay, we're still um, still tangling with the city of Paris. Let's, let's just say we don't get to Paris um, until right before Thanksgiving. When the weather turns, combat operations slow down significantly as a result of the weather, as a result of overextended uh, logistic lines. Um, then the Soviets, the Soviets keep moving while we, while we are, where we are slowed down by the weather. And I think what that means is that the Soviet Union gobbles up a lot more territory, and that the war, I think it still ends in '45, at least in Europe. The war still ends in 45, a little bit later, and the later that the war ends in 1945 in Europe, the deeper Soviet troops have penetrated. Now, if they, they, there was an agreement that the Soviets would pull, to, pull back to the Elbe River line no matter what happened, let's say that they didn't do that. Let's say then that – let's say that the rebuilding of the French Republic in the aftermath of the Second World War – follows the lines of what the Americans envisioned, because what we envisioned for rebuilding France at the end of the Second World War uh, was, first of all, uh, what was it called? The um, Allied Military Government of Occupied Territories, AMGOT. Let's just say that we had proceeded with the AMGOT idea, which was a, which was a military government of a liberated France that then builds toward a year or two later free, open, democratic, multi-party elections, which is what, what this is. This is what the United States had in mind for post-war France. And if that has, had happened, there would have been, I don't think there's any room for debate or doubt, there would have been a powerful enough communist party in France to where France would have become part of the Marxist vision for post-World War II Europe. And France then, therefore, would not have been a continuing ally. France would have been swept into the ideological con confrontation of the Cold War on the other side, not on our side. And I think it, it's not unreasonable to expect that France and almost everything between it and East Germany would have been uh, basically Soviet client states. So I think the war in Europe still ends. It still ends in 1945. But I think the more important issue, or the more important question, is how 
this development of a failure of the D-Day landings would have changed the Cold War. Hmm. No, it's interesting to consider. So the, it is, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. So the, the Battle of the Bulge was the last desperate major offensive by the Germans in the West. Had they not simply run out of fuel, could this have made a real difference, or was it just a complete waste on both sides at that point? I spent a lot of time on the Battle of the Bulge battlefield, and and I spent a lot of time, particularly in the area on the north shore of the Battle of the Bulge, north shore, north shoulder of the Battle of the Bulge, where First SS Panzer Regiment was spearheading the main assault, and you know that's the assault that goes rages through places like um, Malmedy and ultimately to La Glaise, meaning basically the path of Kampgruppe Piper, and. Over and over again, I, I have to recognize that there were moments where the Battle of the Bulge could have gone the way, exactly the way that Germany imagined it going. In the end of the Battle of the Bulge, for them, it all falls apart, and eventually Adolf Hitler relents and lets his forces pull back out of the Bulge, um, and it's all basically one big squandered effort, but it didn't have to end that way. There are moments, particularly in the early phases of the battle, where even microcosmic clashes of arms dealing with very small units could have gone a totally different way. With the path of Kampgruppe Piper, I can't help but think that they were very close to reaching the road that would have led them directly toward the bridges over the River Meuse in the vicinity of Dinan and Liège. And if they had reached that, they might have continued, that would have maybe given them enough momentum to recapture Antwerp, which was the objective of the operation to begin with. Mm. And there are so many moments where that came close to happening during that first week of the Battle of the Bulge. I mean, there are points too where, in particularly the Battle of the Bulge in Northern Luxembourg, where American units stand and fight and fight very well and slow the German timetable down, where I can't help but engage in the great exercise of contrafactual history, in other words, the whole what-if factor, particularly in the area where the 28th Infantry Division fought in northern Luxembourg, and then, oh, my God, the the place where the 4th Infantry Division fought. I should say the place is where the 4th Infantry Division fought in the vicinity of Eschenach um, on the, uh, at the head of the Sur River and Ur River in uh, Luxembourg. If the 28th Division and 4th Division had not fought the way that they fought, I think the Germans could have achieved all of, the, uh, all of their objectives in the south shoulder of the Battle of the Bulge. They could have if it hadn't been for the way that the 28th Division stood in, stood in the way of German fighting forces, they could have gotten to Bastogne a day earlier than they did. As it is, they don't make contact with the perimeter around Bastogne until December 19th. Uh, how does the battle look if they're, if they're already there on the 18th? I think it looks completely different because I think it means that the Germans take the city of Bastogne, which sets them up to maintain this momentum as they continue to push westward. In other words, I'm reminded over and over again when I spend time on that battlefield that the Battle of the Bulge could have gone a lot different than it did, that we – it's a good thing that part of the culture of the United States Army in Europe during the Second World War 
was a stand-and-fight culture and a direct initiative culture uh, because that ends up making the, the major tactical difference where you look at the way that units like 4th Division and Luxembourg, 28th Division in Luxembourg, the way that they stand and fight 2nd Infantry Division uh, at Elvenborn Ridge in Belgium. Um, oh, my God, just the way 9th Armored Division makes a stand in, the, um, in and around St. Vith. Ultimately, they have to surrender it and pull back, but their stand is critical. Well, with the way that these units stood and fought, they, they changed the way that the war in Europe ended by denying Germany that big victory in the bulge. And if the Germans had prevailed, I still think Germany loses the war. I think even if they had succeeded in many of their objectives in the bulge, they still lose in the end, but they lose under a totally different set of terms. And, and in fact, I mean, as it is, they lose with no terms. They're completely destroyed by invading armies from the east and the west and occupied by invading armies. But I think if they had prevailed more in the Battle of the Bulge, it would have put them in a position 